FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, it's qualifying week down at the state capitol. It began yesterday. It runs through Friday. It's uh, the time in which candidates in every race on the ballot, uh, whether you're running for uh, Congress, United States Senate, uh, legislative uh, seats, statewide constitutional offices, um, you've got to be down there. you got to plunk your money down and uh, commit that you are officially a candidate. So I suppose there are some ways in which you can say this is the week that the campaigns really become official uh, in the sense that they are now in it for the long haul. Um, We've got a lot to talk about in terms of that with our panel, but a number of other issues, as always, uh, on the agenda for today. So let me get right to our panelists, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, our Tuesday partner from the AJC. How are you, Tamar? Hey, Bill. Love being with you on Tuesdays. Yeah, and really get fun to be here on a day when we've already seen the first round of qualifiers and more to come. It's always a great spectacle at the state capitol as candidates come marching in with their uh, supporters uh, and uh, sign on the dotted line. Um, we'll get into that in just a second. Uh, Emma Hurt is back with us today. She's a reporter at Axios Atlanta. And um, Emma, I got to say, the New York Times this morning had a terrific piece about the uh, ambitions of your boss uh, in Washington, uh, 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 Jim Vanderhei, who wants to really expand the Axios empire far and wide, including your presence here in Atlanta, Emma. Yeah, it's just a small goal to, you know, sort of change the local media landscape. But uh, I feel like every time I talk to to my bosses about it, there's a greater target number of cities that Axios uh, is expanding to. But, you know, the the model is working. Um, It's proven profitable. And so as long as it is, they're going to continue expanding. And, you know, they say to hope to bring it to every community in uh, in the country. We'll see how far it goes. But right now we're hiring a lot all across the country and it's exciting. Vandehei wants to take over the world, let's face it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Leroy Chapman, managing editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us again today. How are you, Leroy? It's good to see you. Doing okay, and it's uh, great to be here, Bill. Thank you for having me. Sure. Rick Dent. Uh, We haven't seen Rick since uh, the last election cycle. He's the vice president of Matrix Communications. And among many other things, Rick, you watch very carefully spending in the political races and you watch the ads as they roll out from the campaigns. And we're really looking forward to talking to you about that today. But, Rick, let's go back a little bit with you. I asked you before the show, I was trying to remember when we first started dealing with each other, and you reminded me that it was when you became Governor Miller, Zell Miller's press secretary, all the way back in 1993, right? Uh, That's right. So today is a basically a continuation of a 30-year relationship 
between the two yeah. of us. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You also came into the governor's office at a time when he couldn't have been at a lower point in his uh, governorship. Uh, it's one of the reasons that he actually reached out to me. He was at the lowest point. It was right after the flag. Uh, he had bottomed yeah. out. I came and interviewed in July of 93 and then came on board. Yeah, people give uh, Roy Barnes the credit he deserves for being the governor who changed the Georgia flags, got rid of the Confederate symbolism on the flag. Uh, but Zell Miller tried to do it first and got shot down badly, and it it looked like it was going to doom his chances for re-election. Thank goodness Rick Dent was there to save the day. Well, but just understand, the first thing I said to the man was, what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> and, his, All right. and his response was... I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Thank you for that little piece of history. Uh, Tamara, I said in the headlines to the show that um, we have a challenger for uh, to David Scott in the 13th Congressional District. Scott's been in that seat since uh, 2003. And now Vincent Ford, who was a colleague of David Scott's in the state Senate many years ago, uh, is going to qualify today to uh, run against him in the Democratic primary. And and as I ask you to talk about it, let me read you a quote from David Scott, I mean from uh, Vincent Ford, uh, as he announces his campaign. He says, it is time to energize the 13th District and provide our citizens the honest, active congressional representation they deserve and currently lack. And I emphasize those words, energize and active, because they're pointed. There there has been a lot of talk that David Scott, for all that he has done on the Hill, uh, is starting to maybe uh, not be quite as engaged as he was before. So that's a very pointed statement. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And David Scott has been targeted uh, by many fellow Democrats over the last couple of years. His 13th congressional congressional district, deeply uh, Democratic district that kind of hugs the Southwest kind of arc of the city, at least before redistricting. And I, you know, apologize for not being fully kind of aware of where the new district is, but it kind of includes Hartsfield-Draxon, kind of sweeps around Cobb and kind of goes up into like Smyrna and kind of up around there. And David Scott is a blue dog Democrat. He he is very, you know, he's quite centrist, especially on economic and defense issues. There were many moments over the years where he did stand uh, with Republican presidents. Uh, he endorsed Johnny Isaacson back in 2016, uh, always talked about wanting to work with Trump on um, kind of economic issues, especially workforce training for, for black men. And there are a lot of people who really didn't like that stance from him, who believe that he was insufficiently liberal for that district. And of course, as you mentioned with this statement from Vincent Fort, um, there's been lots of talk about his capacity to be able to do this job. Um, you know, David Scott is is on the older side, um, you know, physically, he, he walks with, um, you know, a cane and, and isn't as mobile as he used to be. And there are some people who say that mentally he's not kind of where he was before as well. Um, you know, there's a pretty scathing story that ran in Politico a couple months ago that talked about his his uh, leadership on the House Agriculture Committee um, and plenty of rivals on that committee who say he's not kind of mentally there. Um, David Scott and his allies, of course, have vehemently fought back against that. But still, it's a real vulnerability for for 
him. And uh, back in 2020, he almost ended up in a runoff, um, you know, against Keisha Waits. Um, you know, he, he ended up getting about 53% of the vote, so managed to avoid that. But there are certainly plenty, especially of progressives, who believe that in such a deep blue district that they could be able to knock him off. You know, uh, it, it is interesting, though, Leroy, uh, it, it, Tamar it correctly states that this feeling about David kind of being at a point where maybe he wants to slow down for all we know. Um, but he is the chair of the House Agriculture Committee, which is a very powerful position and at least gives him the potential to do a lot of good for farmers in Georgia. He's a from rural Georgia himself. Uh, and also we should point out, Leroy, that David Scott was able to uh, uh, lead the charge to put uh, millions of dollars into uh, historically black colleges and universities in the last farm bill. So it isn't as if he's been sitting around doing nothing up there, Leroy. So David Scott, uh, you know, tenure in Washington uh, is still currency, right? So for the state of Georgia, he certainly has been uh, someone who's been in a position to deliver both through his chairmanship and some of the um, allegiances that, that he's made and some of the, the, uh, the, you know, the priorities that he's made for things like HBCUs, uh, black farmers. Uh, so there's been uh, plenty of things that he's delivered upon. Um, now, the issue, of course, is in running uh, there are not a lot of politicians in Washington in Washington who are getting elected based upon their ability to, to compromise, to be centrist. Uh, as that becomes you know, less of a priority for the electorate. So it's not the politicians, it's really electorate. Uh, you know, the, the case that Vincent Ford or any other challenger may make, that he is not sufficiently um, progressive, uh, that he has given too much deference to big banks and things like that, that it does have the potential to hurt even a long-time incumbent. And we've seen that in a couple of election cycles where uh, attacks from the uh, far right or the far left have left some incumbents vulnerable, those who um, have run based on being able to deliver and, and being able to uh, kind of get along with both parties. Um, Rick, so I understand Tamar's point that uh, David Scott has been a guy who's been willing to work across the aisle. He's never been one of the more liberal members of uh, of the Democratic uh, uh, House. But but it, it seems that the challenges he's faced in, in recent years have not necessarily had a whole lot to do with where he stands on the political spectrum. I, I, it's been interesting to me how vulnerable— uh, people have thought he is, regardless of his ideology, Rick. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. But, but like the panel just said, it, it's he's almost old-fashioned now. He's almost out of step with the times. We want people on the far left and the far right. And it's a shame because seniority actually does matter. He has delivered. I think I'm old school. He's owed a debt. Let the man serve and leave him alone. Interesting. Emma, you've watched Vincent Fort uh, during his tenure in the state Senate. He's an interesting candidate to take on uh, uh, David Scott. Yeah, I mean, almost couldn't be more different in terms of style of politics. Vincent Fort <laughs> is known to show up in an activist role at all kinds of um, issues across the state, uh, the city, excuse me. And um, he's always a very loud and sometimes combative voice. 
um, I would say he's not afraid to get in people's faces on things that he thinks are not going well. And um, so the, 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 uh, the difference we're setting up here, voters are going to have two very different choices, um, at least two. Tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. And and Vincent Fort is very connected in that district. Uh, but so far, David Scott has been able to ride it out. I mean, I'm sure his team would say privately that uh, what happened in 2020, almost uh, ending up in a runoff, was certainly not as comfortable as they would have wanted. But he has been able over the last couple of years to kind of survive a lot of challenges. Um, and there, there has been things that he's been able to kind of bring back to the district um, that I think sometimes his challengers um, kind of forget that he has made allies. He holds a of job fairs. Um, you know, he's known, I remember when I was covering the farm bill when Sonny Perdue was agriculture chief and he was fighting tooth and nail any changes to uh, food stamps and kind of adding more work requirements to that. Um, so he certainly has made a ton of allies in the district as well. It'll be interesting to see kind of given what the climate is going to be at, uh, you know, a little bit later this spring, whether that helps kind of an, a more centrist, more established voice like him, or whether there will be more more of a fever to kind of get in more progressive, kind of more ideological kind of fighters. Um, so I'll be interested to see where the winds are blowing come May. Yeah, uh, that is going to be a fascinating ra- uh, race to watch unfold. Um, Leroy, uh, uh, a few other uh, qualifiers yesterday, uh, Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bordeaux, both at the Capitol yesterday. Of course, Carolyn Bordeaux the incumbent in the 7th District. Lucy McBath was basically drawn out of the 6th District. That's a Republican district now, so she has little chance of winning over there and now is taking on Bordeaux in a primary. Um, we also had uh, some U.S. Senate candidates down at the Capitol. Raphael Warnock was there. Uh, Herschel Walker came in, and here's what I wanted to mention about that, Leroy. Herschel Walker yesterday said, oh, by the way, I have no intention of participating in primary uh, debates. Uh, (laughs) Quite a statement to make on March 7th as uh, the race is really getting underway. Uh, Leroy? (laughs) So, yeah, Um, as we've seen, um, you know, candidate Walker has has struggled uh, some on his feet. Uh, in interviews with even friendly media. And what that means is it's been uh, Fox News and uh, various other conservative media. Uh, you know, there have been some moments where um, where he struggled to, to really articulate uh, two things. One, a, a real clear sort of vision. And two, you know, a specifics on policy. And to uh, have someone who, of course, is a political novice uh, in, in every way, uh, but who's running based upon uh, his name recognition and his allegiance to Trump, uh, you know, it, I'm sure his campaign team does not want to subject him to, you know, a forum where he's having to discuss the particulars of policy and his, uh, the folks who are challenging him uh, will be able to be well-versed in a lot of the issues, and uh, he struggles so far. So, you know, there is something to be said about the building of Herschel Walker, the candidate. And so the question is, how does that play if he survives a runoff in a general election? Because uh, it'll be a much more difficult for him to bow out of uh, such a such a, um, a, a debate uh, in, a, in a general election. But but he may well do that. But but this is really interesting. He's, he's an unconventional candidate, and I think the handling of this by his team is is probably pretty shrewd. 
Emma, here's a quote from Walker. I'm thinking about debating Raphael Warnock now because that's who I need to be debating right now. I'm going to debate Raphael Warnock because I'm going to win this primary and I'm going to be, I'm going to the general. Gary Black uh, came back at him pretty strongly. And we'll talk about what Gary Black, the other, another candidate for that seat, had to say. But weigh in on this, please, Emma. I mean, it, it seems pretty clear that his campaign and, and Walker himself are making the, the judgment that maybe voters don't care about a primary debate. And um, the polling shows that he has reason to be very confident. And as Leroy mentioned, he is a unique candidate in that just without even talking about a stump speech or any making a pitch about being a senator, he can walk into so many different kinds of rooms in Georgia and get applause just based on his football uh, history here. And um, it seems Based on the polling, based on signals we're seeing from his campaign, they're confident that that is going to carry him easily over the primary threshold. November, perhaps a different story. Hence, he's talking about showing up to a debate then. Um, Rick, uh, Gary Black, who under many other circumstances you'd imagine would be the leading candidate in the Republican primary for U.S. Senate, given his popularity statewide as ag- agriculture commissioner, uh, said essentially uh, that uh, that Herschel Walker is not wanting to debate, not talking to mainstream media, is taking cues from consultants who don't want him to rattle off more, quote, bizarre remarks in an unforgiving spotlight. Rick? I mean, look, you know, and we'll talk about ads later. You know, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars to basically come up with one sentence descriptions, and it's going to be the crazy football player. That's that's going to be the theme, <laughs> the, the crazy football player, fair or unfair. Uh, and I feel bad for Gary Black. I mean, there's nothing he can do. That That primary is over. Now, what I would do if I was Warnock right now, I'd take that opening um, that Walker just gave him. I would put out, let's go out every month, you and me. Let's travel the state together. Let's debate in every corner of the state. Let's start this month and see what happens. And this is such an advantage that, that Warnock has over Walker is that he's a pastor who's given speeches at churches every week for decades, uh, whereas Walker is a little newer. I mean, he he talks, you know, he, he released a book and has gone on book tour and, and will talk to, to different groups, but it is far different when you're a politician who has to watch every single word that you say. Um, so, yeah, exactly. I think I think Rick is right. That That's certainly something that, that Warnock can exploit. And kind of going off of what Emma said a little while ago, um, it makes sense why Walker doesn't want to, to debate at this point. He has so much to lose uh, if he slips up. I mean, right now there's some polls that show him with 80% of the primary vote. He has no incentive to go and face the, you know, Gary Black and Lathan Sadler and some of these others. It can only hurt his standing. So why do it if you don't have to? Of course, you know, there's that journalist side of me who, of course, wants, you know, I think it's in the public interest to have these candidates go out and be questioned so voters can compare and contrast. But that cynical kind of political hat of mine is saying, why? Does he need to? Rick? And and understand one thing. Uh, one of the techniques that modern campaigns use, in fact, we were the first to use it with Zell Miller in the 90s. It's called tracking. You track your opponent everywhere he goes, and you tape everything he says. And that's one reason why you hide a candidate 
like Herschel Walker. Because every time he makes a mistake, your opponent's going to have it, and he can use it as a weapon. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit, Emma, about this contest that uh, is now shaping up between Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bordeaux. There's nobody—Democrats cannot be happy that, um, that the Republican redistricting of the 6th and 7th created a situation in which Lucy McBath felt that the only way— to uh, keep a keep a seat in Congress was to go challenge a a fairly solid, well, maybe not so solid uh, incumbent Carolyn Bordeaux. I mean, that is not one of the uh, happier uh, uh, events for Democrats right now. No, it's kind of a nightmare actually for Democrats, but um, it is happening, and uh, Lucy McBath has come in quite strong into Bordeaux's. You know, I guess, you know, her seventh district, so it, it looks quite different than, than her current seventh district. And, you know, McBath internal polling shows her uh, leading Bordeaux. She's gotten, um, you know, support from um, some uh, prominent members of Congress. And um, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough dynamic, but um, Carolyn Bordeaux is not backing down. There, there were some rumors of that. Um, she qualified, as you said, did not decide to switch to another race. And um, so the fight seems to continue. Um, all right. Well, we're going to keep track of uh, more on uh, qualifying week as the week goes on on the show. Here's what I think we ought to do. Um, Rick Dent is prepared to uh, lead us in a conversation uh about where we stand in terms of spending by the campaigns, uh, the, 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 the premier campaigns, and to help us take a look at some of the ads. And I can't wait to hear the panel weigh in on all of that. So let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way right now and come back to talk about that and a lot more on today's Political Rewind. The AJC, very well represented on today's show by senior reporter Tamar Hallerman and uh, managing editor Leroy Chapman, uh, Emma Hurt from Axios Atlanta, and Rick Dent, uh, who is a, uh, a vice president at, at Matrix Communications, which uh, does government relations work. Rick, do you work with candidates at Matrix, or are you strictly in the uh, broader government relations business? I don't frankly know the answer to that. The only time we work with candidates these days is when a client needs it or wants it. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. So let's talk a little bit. We're, we're very early in, this, in these races. Uh, we're going to focus on the governors, first the primary, but also talk about Stacey Abrams a little bit, and we're going to talk about the Senate race as well. Rick, you, tell, you told me that at this point, the total spending in the governor's race, and that includes Brian Kemp spending for Brian Kemp's campaign for David Perdue, fair fight action, Stacey Abrams. We're up to fourteen point one million dollars in spending already this early in the race. Uh, that's right. Now keep in mind a huge chunk of that, about six and a half million, is fair fight because they've been on for about four months. They stopped in February, just pounding on Governor Kemp. Part of this also represents some spending in the future as well that throws mm -hmm. that off. And Kemp plopped down about $4 million that he's going to start spending at the end of March. So that's in that number as well. 
Let, let's make sure that our listeners understand. What you do is you pay out front to reserve TV time uh, in the future. Uh, That's right. Nevertheless, it's still spending. It's still you're still representing right. uh, sp- spending. Um, That's right. Uh, t- tomorrow, what's interesting about this when you look at Rick's totals is that um, he tells us that Kemp has a five to one advantage over David Perdue right now in terms of, I guess this is fundraising, um, money spent. It's just, it, it's staggering to see how far behind Tamar David Perdue is right now in that part and of the race. Interesting. Sure, and it's interesting to see the way that David Perdue has chosen to advertise with those limited resources that he's had so far. You've seen little 15-second ads um, that he's put out, which, first of all, are relatively short. They're not kind of your standard 30-second or minute-long political ad, and they mostly feature... Donald Trump talking, not David Perdue. Like so, so in that 15 seconds, the message that they are choosing to amplify is that Trump supports him, not necessarily the voice of David Perdue. Um, so I think that's um, that's pretty telling. Uh, let's listen, uh, to Emma, to uh, the most recent David Perdue ad, which is exactly what Tamar Hallerman said. What we're going to hear is not David Perdue, but Donald Trump. Here it is. Brian Kemp let us down. We can't let it happen again. David Perdue is an outstanding man. He's tough. He's smart. He has my complete and total endorsement. Vote for David Perdue. Emma, we haven't heard uh, David Perdue's voice on either of the Donald Trump spots that he's uh, 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 appeared in on behalf of Perdue. Emma? This is his biggest card, and he's gonna he's gonna use it again and again and again. Um, it seems, and you know, in a Republican primary in Georgia in 2022, um, many would argue that's a good strategy. So the question becomes, will it be enough to uh, to bring him over the over the edge? But I mean, in in Governor Kemp's as as David Perdue continues to use Trump to hit right at Kemp, I'm gonna be curious to watch how they evolve, whether they are fully against Purdue, focused on Purdue, or whether they start to transition towards Abrams, because I think that'll tell us how the Kemp team is feeling during this primary ad season. Uh, Let me let Leroy weigh in, and then Rick, I know you want to add to that. Yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, Senator Purdue, obviously, uh, Trump is, is certainly the basis for his campaign. And the thing I think that we'll watch, too, is uh, two things. One is uh, down the stretch, uh, of course, Trump, uh, you know, visiting uh, that sort of active campaigning. But just in terms of ad buys and money, uh, you know, Purdue is, is certainly, uh, you know, running this campaign based solely on that. And the currency of that, though, over the course of between now and, you know, we vote so in a few months, uh, you know, you have to wonder with everything that's going on, uh, is, is it going to be exactly what, what he intends or he thinks of it today? Because uh, we know that there are several things that are happening right now with former president, and uh, it may shift some things just a little bit. So we're talking about really in a tight race degree. And uh, so I think how the electorate abuse uh, Trump could shift along with uh, all the things, all the storylines that are going on with the uh, former president. Rick, this this oh man, the Purdue campaign is going to hate me now. This <laughs> is going to be the most critical juncture of the governor's race in that primary. 
he basically is all in because he is spending about $600,000 the last couple of weeks and the week going forward just pushing this into the middle of the table. If it works, he's going to go to donors and say, look, I can beat this guy. If it doesn't work, he is in serious, serious trouble. And here is why. After next week, he hadn't bought anything else. And here comes Mike Tyson with a left hook, because that's when the governor starts $4 million worth of advertising at the end of March. So this thing could be over by then if these ads don't work for Purdue. You know, Tamar, look, let's face it. Having Donald Trump in your corner is a big, big plus for David Perdue. How far it will take him, especially after what Rick just said, we don't know. But it is certainly possible David Perdue could become the Republican nominee for governor. But I can't help but wonder if there's somewhere in the corner of David Perdue's mind uh, a scenario like the one Rick described when he went to work for uh, 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 Zell Miller and said to Zell Miller, what were you thinking about changing the flag? And Miller said, I don't know. <laughs> and I can't help but wonder, Tamar, if somewhere in the back of David Perdue's mind, he is wondering if it was the smartest decision to allow Donald Trump to convince him he should run for governor. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and you talked to his team and they mentioned things like, you know, when David Perdue first ran for Senate back in 2014, he was vastly outgunned by Jack Kingston in that um, Republican primary. So he talks about you know, kind of not being scared of that or having overcome uh, money woes and, and stuff like that. I think what he didn't anticipate was just how many Republicans either have ended up sitting on the sidelines or even kind of former Purdue people who have ended up sticking with Kemp in this kind of civil war. Um, and so... As Emma said, this Trump stuff is the, the ultimate Trump card for him. That it's, it's the gamble to take. This is a primary. And so, you know, the Republican primary voters, the people who are going to come out, um, those are the activists. Those are the people who probably are the most likely to support Trump in the voting pool. So that could very well end up working for him. And then after, you know, should he clear this primary, then it, it might be smooth sailing for him. Uh, but I think a lot of it will really depend um, what people think of Trump come May 24th. The one thing I'll just add is that um, while there are some parallels to 2014 in terms of money and backing from establishment, you know, state lawmakers, all of that for David Perdue, there's one big difference in that his cousin, Sonny Perdue, isn't able to campaign for him because he is now chancellor of the University System of Georgia. So it's not quite the same as 2014. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. But again, I... I have said throughout this uh, uh, campaign, don't count da- David Purdue out just because right now things don't look great for him. He does have Purdue in his corner. Nevertheless, it's going to be fascinating to watch that uh, uh, play out. Um, Rick, let's listen to another ad. You talked about the fact that uh, Fair Fight Action spent a lot of money uh, uh, pounding away at Brian Kemp. The ads were up in January. They've gone down for now. Uh, Let's listen to uh, a fair fight spot that really emphasizes what is going to be, again, one of the most important messages Stacey Abrams will take into the general election. The children and families I care for are facing rising medical bills. Parents' jobs are at risk. They can't afford their medication, 
and families are faced with impossible decisions that no parent should have to make. Brian Kemp has refused federal dollars to expand Medicaid that would help patients like mine. Is he playing politics or does he just not care? Paid for by Fair Fight Action. Uh, Rick, of course, a woman wearing a stethoscope around her neck, a doctor. Uh, Medicare, uh, uh, Medicaid, expanding Medicaid for all, obviously going to be another huge issue for Stacey Abrams, Rick. How, how resonant do you imagine it's going to continue to be? Well, she, they have put more than $6 million behind that kind of uh, advertising so far. That particular ad was on for 89 days. Okay, 80, 89 days. So that's, that's kind of a commitment in my book. Um, understand this. Who is she communicating with? She's not, now she's attacking Kemp, but she's not talking to primary voters in the Republican primary who probably don't care so much about expanding uh, Medicaid. She's talking to her base. She's talking to Atlanta. She's talking to independents. She's talking to the suburbs. And the question is, how long will she continue to talk through Fair Fight? Interesting. Um, Leroy? Yeah, so the, uh, there will be a lack of money here, right? So that, that's just the big thing. So when you talk about the messaging that, that you'll be able to sustain over the course of the right now, because uh, I think as the panel was pointing out, you know, the, uh, Abrams has a, a window here where, uh, because there is a Republican primary where she can, take her spot. Uh, she is not uh, so much in the spotlight. Uh, and in and, and doing that, you can be pretty judicious in how you spend your money and you can target. And that's, you know, an observation Rick had about being able to speak to uh, the voters that you want to mobilize and convince in a general election, and, and you don't have to worry about the primary. Um, I think the other thing, too, is just the national money that's going to come to, to Georgia, because you know, this is a swing state, and all of our politics are going to matter way more than they used to, right? So it's not just uh, the federal offices, because we can think we think about what's going to happen with, you know, the balance of power in the Senate with the Warnock seat, or if you think about, um, you know, what might be happening, um, you know, elsewhere and what we're going to have in a couple of years with uh, with Ossoff. But, you know, the, the, the race for governor is, is vitally important uh, if we – uh, don't understand that. Just look back at 2020 elections, what happened when you had uh, some contested results and all the decision-making that, that, that took place then. Uh, you had if other people were uh, in, in some of those seats. You know, maybe we have a different uh, story here in Georgia. So anyway, the money is going to continue to flood in, in, in Georgia, and we're going to follow that because, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, whether or not we have a, a, a governor um, – whoever is in the gubernatorial seat, I think in 2024, uh, it's really going to come home as to uh, nationally, um, you know, what that means in terms of, uh, you know, uh, national politics. Uh, I'm sorry, 2023. What's going to mean 2024 in terms of national politics before forecast? And, you know, just to add quickly on, on the money and following the money, with this campaign, it's not just as simple as tracking, you know, Abrams's campaign and maybe a a PAC or a leadership mm. committee, we also have to follow groups like Fair Fight, who that didn't exist pre-2018 that she created, is now technically separate from, but they are singing the same tune, and Fair Fight's PAC is spending big money that, um, as, as Rick has pointed out, is targeting Kemp as well. So it's a much more complex landscape for us as journalists to cover. 
Absolutely. Um, thank you for making that point. I want to look at one more ad. Um, Rick, uh, the Republican Governors Association has how much money has the Republican Governors Association put into the ad for Brian Kemp? Do you do you know that figure off I the do. top of your head? If not, okay. I do. They're doing about seventy-five grand a week since February first, and they're going to go okay, all the so, way till the end of March. Okay, so let's point out that the Republican Governors Association has, uh, you know, weighed in and said we're going to support our incumbents. They've got primary challenges for a number of Republican governors. They made it clear they're going to support their incumbents, and so they're advertising for Brian Kemp. And I want to play this ad because I think there's something interesting and well let's just play it and then we'll discuss it under joe biden out of control spending skyrocketing inflation an invasion on the southern border but georgia has a proven conservative leader fighting back governor brian kemp kemp cut taxes creating one of america's fastest growing economies and good paying jobs and Governor Kemp sent the National Guard to the border to help stop illegal drugs flooding into our communities. Governor Brian Kemp, delivering for Georgia. So, Tamar, RGA basically tells us Brian Kemp's not running against Stacey Abrams. He's running against Joe Biden. <laughs> I find it really interesting the way they have nationalized the spot. Maybe Rick can tell us, but I want to get your thoughts on this, Tamar. Uh, you know, did they plug in their governors into what were national spots? or didn't? Don't you find that a little odd? Absolutely not. This is such a great card for them to play. Joe Biden's approval is so underwater. It's like in the low 30s, or sorry, high 30s, low 40s. That's such an easy card for them to play. If I was a Republican, I'd tie every single Democrat from like dog catcher to president, you know, everybody up to Joe Biden. And that is 100% what they will do with Warnock and, and with Abrams, because it's such an easy card for them to play. Um, and so it's going to create a really awkward situation especially for Raphael Warnock, who has had to work a lot with Joe Biden, who has helped enable a lot of Joe Biden's agenda. He might have to awkwardly hide from the president or, or kind of dodge some of it, as we've seen from uh, Democrats in the past when, you know, Barack Obama, for example, wasn't at the height of his popularity. Um, so if I was a Republican, I would exploit that at every turn. Yeah, uh, Rick, I take I take Tamar's point. Um, nationalizing the race around the unpopularity of Joe Biden right now. Um, but I guess it's part of the stakes at play here are that Joe Biden's approval numbers continue to be uh, low. Uh, so comment on that. Uh, yeah, they're absolutely horrible. And you're absolutely right in terms of a, a cookie cutter approach. That ad or a similar ad is going to run all over the country. <laughs> It doesn't yeah. matter. It does not matter. And and it's as the panel has said, it's very smart politics. And it you know, unfortunately, Democrats seem, seem to do better when they don't have a democratic candidate. Uh, I mean, a democratic president because it's always hung over their over their necks when they're running. We tend to do better when there's a Republican in the in the White House. <laughs> Emma <laughs> You know, I mean, it's a. Uh, I think I'm. I'm also curious to see how um, how state lawmakers come into play after the session is over in this race, and and whether um, and whether they uh, whether they 
tend to, whether they switch camps, whether they stay in Kemp's camp versus Purdue's camp, whether promises are made and the landscape changes or, um, or whether the lines stay the same with the RGA and Kemp and the uh, sort of incumbency on one side and, and Purdue as the outsider on the other. Uh, interesting. Tamar? Um, just to put a point on what Rick just said, I think it's so much easier to run against something and someone um, and that's why you see a lot of these kind of pendulum swings in American politics. You're just in, in so much of an advantage when you're in the minority party and you're able to kind of slam what the leadership in Washington has done. It's something Democrats were able to exploit in 2018 and 2020 when Donald Trump was leading the, the uh, country and Republicans are going to do it this year. And of course, you know, we tend to see midterm years where the party that's in power tends to lose a lot of seats. Republicans know that. Um, they're going to exploit every single opening that they have in terms of uh, the war with Ukraine, in terms of the economy, inflation, you name it. Um, and they're going to tie every single Georgia Democrat to that. I can promise you that. Uh, uh, Bill, I want to get Rick Bill, and then Leroy in also. Go Bill, ahead, Rick, and then Leroy. You, you covered the 90s in Georgia. So you know every Dem- Democrat in Georgia had to run with Bill Clinton hanging over them. You remember that? <laughs> everybody everybody hid from Bill Clinton, including Zell Miller, who nominated him uh, in the De- Democratic Convention. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's Thank you for uh, reminding me of, of those days. Uh, Leroy, last word before a break. Yeah, you know, that history uh, we all remember, too, with uh, the— you know, incumbent Democratic presidents, uh, both both with Bill Clinton and with Barack Obama. Uh, you know, one of the things here with uh, with President Biden too, uh, that's I guess the slight difference is, uh, you know, this is or potentially with what's going on with uh, Ukraine and this being a time of war, uh, it does change the calculation a little bit because some of the politics that were uh, sharp and sometimes intensely divisive. Uh, we don't know where we're going to be in three or four months or five months or six months. So it could actually change uh, a little bit. And if we are talking about, uh, you know, a, a essentially wartime sort of president, uh, that does change the narrative a little bit. Yeah, thank you for that. All right, let's get our final break of the show out of the way uh, and move on with some other subjects when we come back. Well, as usual, I put too many uh, items on our agenda for discussion today, and we won't get to most of them. But I'm really happy with the conversation we've had so far, and I hope all of you out there are as well. But So let's take up a couple of items that I think our panel uh, can really weigh in on. We're going to put off our conversation about a story that Riley Bunch did for GPB about a Senate bill that targets homelessness in a, in a way that many are really uh, uh, pushing hard to oppose. We'll do that on tomorrow's show when Riley is with us. Emma, Axios Atlanta this morning talked about the fact today's an important day down in Camden County. Uh, uh, people down there are getting to vote on the spaceport. Tell us about that. They are, and it's actually a pretty big deal because this has been 10 years in the making that Camden County's uh, government has been trying to, um, they finally got a spaceport operator license in December and this is the first time voters have really had a say about the project. And it happened after a petition, a write-in campaign that forced a referendum, despite a lawsuit where the county tried to stop the referendum. And there's even been some drama recently with the county commission um, creating a spaceport authority last week, late last week, that 
they were given the ability to do by the state legislature, but opponents are worried that that would be a way to circumvent the referendum, which is um, binding on the county commission, not the authority. But State Representative Stephen Sainz really came out with the strongest um, voice we've heard from a, another elected official on the spaceport saying that if they do that, he will immediately sunset the ability for the authority to operate. So that's a little weedy. Basically, what you need to know is that Camden County um, is, is getting a say today and, um, and people are watching to, to make sure that um, the, the will of the voters, whatever it might be, is, is uh, honored. And, of course, uh, the bottom line on this is that there are business interests in Camden County that have pushed for this for a very long time, thinking this will really uh, ignite uh, economic development uh, in, along the coast. Uh, and, and, and community people who say the last thing we need is uh, rockets blasting off over our wetlands, over the coastal waters and the like, right? Right, and over Cumberland Island National Seashore. I mean, opposition is yep. really focused on the other side of that economic development coin saying that there is no money to be had in commercial spaceports, especially one that is in such a precarious position launching over a national seashore and over private homes, which doesn't currently exist. And then there's the environmental concerns. But the county has continued to push, as you said, with this notion that they're trying to diversify their local economy. Uh, Tamara, you had a, a story that I think is worth talking about because so much of what we talk about at the legislature are things where there's, you know, people really fighting actively with one another. What's happening with the measure that you wrote about, uh, which would uh, uh, change how payments are made to people in Georgia who are wrongfully convicted? We, the AJC has uh, on several occasions uh, done investigations that have led uh, to the exoneration of people wrongfully convicted. So it's a story that I assume is close to the hearts of you and your colleagues. Yeah, we've written a ton over the last two years about a man named Dennis Perry, um, who ended up being free after 20 years in, in custody, um, due a lot to the, the reporting of my colleague Joshua Sharp and DNA evidence that kind of showed that the that, that his alibi was, was strong and that there was another man... Um, uh, who who looks like he might have committed the crime, but I didn't. What I didn't realize until I started reporting the story is just how ad hoc um, the the case is. If somebody has been wrongfully um, imprisoned and then later exonerated, you have to kind of petition the state legislature, get a sympathetic legislature or legislator to uh, quarterback your bill, and you have to go through this really arduous process in front of this board that has to look at your claim. It can take a really long time, and there's so many cases where it gets dragged on, uh, where kind of broader politics can stymie you getting paid, you know, money for the, the years that you lost behind bars. So this is an effort from Scott Holcomb, Chuck Efstration, a bipartisan effort in the House to really standardize the way that this is done. Um, it sets out a ceiling and a floor for how much a person can make based on how much time you spent behind prison. Um, and it seeks to just make the process a little bit fairer. Um, and it would kind of bring Georgia in line with about two thirds of other U.S. states and the federal government that standardized this. Um, it just made it through a House committee yesterday, so it's headed to the Rules Committee. It seems like something that Speaker Ralston is open to, uh, so definitely something we'll be closely watching. And of course, this is a small number of people we're talking about who were wrongfully imprisoned, but of course, mistakes do happen in the criminal justice system, and you'd hope that if it were to happen to you, uh, that there would be a way to 
at least somewhat acknowledge the the pain and the loss in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's why it's important. Small number of people, but the impact on those individual lives are, are hard to calculate. Um, Rick and Leroy, before we leave, I'm, I'm curious what you think about uh, another measure and how it will play into the election cycle, Rick. Um, so the Senate uh, has passed a bill this week which will ban state or local agencies or schools from requiring vaccinations for COVID-19. But here's the context in which I'm interested in asking uh, you first, Rick, about this is is COVID-19, given that we see the pandemic slowing down dramatically, we have no idea what the future will bring, but right now it's slowed down dramatically. Uh, the question about whether you should require vaccines, masks or whatever, not quite as important as it had been in the past. How is COVID going to vanish as long as it stays uh, in, in, a, in a lowered state as it is now as a campaign issue moving forward, Rick? I, I don't think so, and here's why. We just went through a brutal two-year period, and we haven't forgotten that. And our lives still aren't back to normal. And I would say this is really good politics for the Republicans because it's something uh, they can warn against, don't let this ever happen to you again. And it puts the Democrats on the other side with a vote that can be used as a weapon um, in the election. Leroy? Yeah, I think uh, Rick is right in that regard. Uh, the politics uh, have been framed, uh, certainly on the right, as being a matter of, of personal freedom. Um, and I think the other thing, too, is everyone has felt uh, what it's meant for schools to shut down, for the economy, parts of the economy to certainly uh, shut down. And uh, no one wants to revisit it. And I think as wow. people normalize the idea of you know, maybe there is some risk, uh, then, you know, I think that uh, that, that whole question of uh, when do you exercise that right uh, or, I'm sorry, that state authority uh, to either shut down, require a mask, require vaccinations, uh, it, it, it certainly becomes more complicated. That the, 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 fewer, the, the less the risk certainly is apparent to folks. All right. We're going to watch how that uh, plays out in the elections uh, as we move forward. Um, we're out of time. For today's Political Rewind, Emma Hurt, Leroy Chapman, Rick Dent, Tamar Hallerman. Thank you. I, this is another one of the shows when I just wish we could go on for another hour because you all have been great in our conversation today. So thank you all for being uh, with us. Um, and that's it for us today. We're back, of course, with a brand new show tomorrow. Um, in the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. We'll see you again for another Political Rewind tomorrow. Bye-bye, everybody. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.